0: As we continue to look at the, two, the attributes of a follower of Christ, especially as they are reflected in the book of Mark, we're looking at two passages this morning, one from Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and then another from Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 25. You have your Bible. This is to the right. This is the shortest gospel. I'm going to jump from chapter 1 to chapter 11. And rising very early in the morning, speaking about Jesus... While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now moving to Mark chapter 11. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ.
1: Okay, I'm just gonna move a couple things out of the way here. Well, good morning. It's good to be with everybody here. As I'm setting myself up, let me introduce myself. If you don't know me, like I feel like I know everybody, so this is really my hometown, but the truth is people keep moving in and out like they do in any town. So if you don't know me, uh, my name is Beth Blatt, and Covenant Presbyterian Church, or the barn, as we know it around here, um, has been my church home for a long time. Um, And like other people who've been involved with the church for a long time, I've done a lot of things that have to do with the life of the community here. Uh, I've taught Sunday school and worked in day camp and participated in service projects, served on committees, and most recently finished two terms on the elder board. But most of the time when I'm doing things around here in church, it involves prayer. All different kinds of prayer, all different kinds of prayer formats. So a couple months ago, Matt asked if I would take a sermon on prayer as a characteristic of Jesus followers as a part of this series. And he listed some verses from the book of Mark. So I read the passages and prayed about it, no surprise there, and said yes. And then very quickly, I realized that I was in the presence of a problem. Something was making me uneasy. And the best way to summarize that problem would be to say that talking about the first passage that Matt read felt safe. But when it came to the second passage, it didn't feel so safe. It kind of felt like it had yellow caution tape around it. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about why that was so later. But today, um, we're gonna dig into two very different kinds of passages, both showing or telling us something important about prayer through Jesus' actions or words but ultimately I think they're gonna be pointing us back in the same direction. Before I do that, I wanna mention a couple of things that can be a help when talking about the Bible as a whole or select passages and how we can better approach them. I should say as a warning that I am a teacher and I'm constantly fighting the temptation to cover everything, so pray that I don't try to do that. Okay, and I'm also supposed to use this. Let's see, not yet, okay. All right. First, it's helpful to remember um, that the message of the Bible is remarkably consistent across time and changing situations, and that it has an overarching theme. So if you have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, you know that she describes this overarching theme as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God shown to us in Jesus. Well, that's a great summary. And there are of course other big themes in all of scripture like God is able to do more than we ask or imagine or everything we need is provided for us in and by God. The second help is that scripture as a whole helps us understand its various parts. They support each other. So understanding a difficult passage can often be helped by looking at another one that's similar. And the third thing I wanna bring to this is to bring all of yourself to the effort. So years ago, we had a Scottish pastor here teaching, and he had that beautiful, resonant burr, which I can't copy. But one of the things I remember from that time is that he encouraged us to bring everything that we had, that God had given us, to this endeavor of understanding Scripture and following Jesus. And so he, with his beautiful burr, said something like, bring your hearts Bring your head, bring your strengths, bring your emotions, your questions. your rising up, your falling downs, and bring your imagination. And he paused for a dramatic effect, just like this, pointing finger in the air. Your sanctified imagination. And I hadn't been coming here very long, and I didn't know what that was, and I thought maybe that's an add-on package. Um, but what I found out was that you could be prayed for that, that God could use your imagination, it could be set apart, to help you understand the things of God. So this is the first takeaway. If you haven't already done this, find some faithful person around here who has a memorable speaking voice and ask them to pray over your imagination to help you understand the things of God. And we do have people around here with memorable accents. Okay. The last thing, remembering that I'm a teacher, about talking about prayer, it's helpful to have a definition. Now, I wanna say this about definitions about prayer. Um, It's a big subject. Most of the definitions are terrible. So I combine parts of some of the least awful ones to come up with something that should show on the slide if I've got it right. Uh, Maybe. Look at that. Okay. Yay for technology. So for the purpose of understanding what we're talking about, we can define prayer as a type of interaction between a person or persons and God that he initiated that involves communicating about things that are important to you both. So it's a type of communication. Okay, now let's go to the first, okay. Now let's go to the first passage. <clears throat> this is the one that I refer to as being more safe. So this passage captures a quiet moment in Jesus' life and ministry. It happens at a pivot point between one day's activities and the decision about what to focus on for the next day. It's really interesting to note here that even when Jesus seems to be going out of his way to be unnoticed as he goes off to pray that someone does notice him. I mean, this passage takes place, we're told, roughly at about three o'clock in the morning, and it's dark outside, there's no illumination, and he's doing this quietly, and someone still notices. I think it's kind of like your children, if you have children, when you think they're not watching, they're noticing everything you do. So I kind of wondered, perhaps someone had been involved in the day before participating in things that were going on and after a couple hours of sleep, had woken right up thinking about the things that had happened. So the day before had been the Sabbath and after going to the synagogue, Jesus left and immediately did something that caused the religious leaders to be angered with him. And that was that he went to Simon Peter's house and he healed his mother-in-law. And I'm gonna just tell you I love scripture much more for healing a mother-in-law now that I am one. And healing was one of those things that was considered work and it wasn't to be done on the Sabbath. It was considered to be breaking the law. <clears throat> now later in that same day at around sunset, remembering that the Jewish Sabbath runs from sunset to sunset, when it was safe for people to go outside and be doing things, crowds began to gather around Jesus and he continued doing what he had been doing in other places. He was healing people, and he was doing things like delivering them from demons. All kinds of things were happening that day. It was big, and it was busy, and no one knew exactly what Jesus was likely to be doing next. But they were thinking it's probably gonna be interesting. Now, if you use a study Bible, the one with footnotes at the bottom, you'll notice that they note that even in this one line, there are four verbs rising, departing, went and prayed to show that Jesus used some intentionality about finding his space and time to be alone with God. <clears throat> and although we don't have a lot of information here, we can see that Jesus prioritized his time alone with God by his actions. We can see that he prayed, and that coming out of the time with God, he's confident about what he's gonna do next. We're also left with questions. We don't know how long we prayed. We don't know what it looked like. We're not given any of those details. What we do know is that over the centuries, followers of Jesus have approached spending time alone with God in diverse and creative ways, based on their personalities, their temperaments, their leadings, and their circumstances. A lot of those we're familiar with, and they're simple and direct, like putting a chair by a window with your Bible, a corner of a desk, a small room with a door that can be closed, devotional guides, things like that. Others have been more dramatic. There are those who took themselves off to live in caves, often for long periods of time. I don't think they were the extroverts. And at the opposite end of the spectrum were those who found ways to be apart, even in the midst of people and circumstances that they couldn't easily get away from. So one of my favorites, maybe because it involves domestic life, is Susanna Wesley. <clears throat> she was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who are well known in the history of the Christian faith. Now, she had many children, lots of visitors, lots of duties, and a very contentious marriage. She became well known for what she did. She was known for throwing an apron over her head in the middle of the chaos, and that signaled to everyone that she was to be left alone because she was spending time with God. I think this is the origin of the cloak of invisibility. That was my daughter laughing, okay. (laughs) So finding ways to spend quiet or set apart time with God has always been important to Jesus' followers. Good, I just have to get a little drink. Okay, so now to the second passage. In actuality, at its most basic, these few verses in the second passage are simply a statement followed by some followed and preceded, or preceded and followed by some instructions. So why would I view this passage as a place where I need to be cautious? Well, I think there are a few things about this. First, the statement that's made in Mark 22 through 25 is a really big statement. I mean, it really demands to be read many times, like maybe... 87 or 100 times before you even talk about it. Because you have to stop there and go, is it really saying what I think it's saying? I mean, is this how things happen? From faith, you believe things and they happen? It seems straightforward, but at the same time, it can be really hard to grasp. So it leaves us with a little bit of a conundrum there. Also, this passage has been subject to some abuse. Verses 23 and 24, or 23 by itself, have sometimes been presented as standalones. They're sort of seen as celestial credit cards with no limit and no restrictions. That you could use it to get anything you want as long as you did what you needed to do. Well, scripture's not intended to be read or understood out of context. It needs the entirety of the passage and all the other ones that are similar to it. But I think the biggest issue about why use caution with this passage has to do with when we grapple with it and where we've put our focus. Many people, myself included, came to seriously consider or seriously attempt to apply this verse when we were in some of the most vulnerable and challenging situations of our lives. And a lot of you here have been in those places. The brokenness of the world comes very close sometimes, and sometimes it comes to the people who mean more to us than our own lives, and the suffering can be really intense. The barn isn't any different than any other community that's been together for a long time. We carry a lot of history and a lot of stories, and part of that history is praying together during the good times and the not very good times. And sometimes we've seen amazing answers to prayer, and sometimes we haven't. Interaction with this passage has often been a part of those longer, harder prayers. When people are seeking answers, they're seeking help, they're seeking relief in the middle of the struggle. Quite a few people have expressed feeling frustrated, disappointed, or even let down by this set of verses, often feeling that they hold so much promise, but they're so equally hard to get to. But why? Well, a good part of this can be attributed to where we focus our attention. Oops, picture. Good, okay. I have a picture up here that I hope will help illustrate this, in that it represents Uh, the way I viewed praying for hard things for a long time. So you can see in this picture that there's a little girl, a large pile of rocks, and she's leaning into one of these rocks. So even as an adult, I viewed praying about large issues in a way that was very similar to this picture. I would feel like a very small child, confronted by a very large issue, carrying an impossible expectation. I would see it as my responsibility to do everything I possibly could do to meet the demands of the scripture so that God would move the mountain. And this is how I'd go about doing it. I would think, I'm going to present to God such a picture of faithfulness that I will pass the test and then he will press the button and the rock will move. So there's a lot of problems with viewing things this way. In the situation I just described, I'm describing my relationship with God as just being transactional. I do A, he does B. Now we all know that that doesn't work very long in any real relationship, because relationships are a lot more than about A and B. It also gives the impression that we can manipulate God, and we can't. But not infrequently when someone starts by asking questions about their own faith, whether they have a strong faith or not, After a long season of prayer, they usually end up having questions about God because all their faithful efforts never seem to be enough. I remember hearing a person say that she felt like she was being asked to twist herself in a complicated yoga pose while balancing something on her head. I mean, what did God want? Was he really loving? It gets down to the basic ones, right back to the garden. Did God say, and can he be trusted to have our best in mind? There's something about that relationship between faith and an outcome that rankles. So let's go back and look at this passage, uh, Mark eleven twenty-two through 25, verse by verse. So this scene occurs after the disciples have taken note that an olive tree, olive tree that Jesus cursed, that's a whole other sermon about Jesus cursing, has withered right to the roots. And just like in other places, The reply Jesus gives doesn't really seem to go along with the observation. It seems like a non sequitur. But Jesus Jesus has selected this as a teachable moment. He tells his followers to have faith in God. Some translations expand that and say, have faith in God constantly. And it gets deeper because the actual meaning of faith in this passage is the kind of faith and belief that refer to an inherent trust and an enduring confidence in the power, wisdom, and goodness of God. As a matter of fact, it's so enduring and so solid that it's like being given title to property. It's like telling you that when you have this kind of faith, you have a place to stand and operate from that you actually own, like rock solid. Sure, something that's yours, it is not a casual faith. It's after this that Jesus delivers his statement and he starts it by saying truly. In whatever translation you have, it might say truly I say to you or it might say I solemnly assure you. Well, that word truly is the same word that we see at the end of prayers, it's amen. When it's used at the beginning of a statement, it means that what follows is a statement of truth proclaimed with authority by someone who could back it up. That puts a lot of weight on what Jesus says here. What follows truly is actually true. Now what's not in the ESV, but you'll see in other translations is what's also implied here, which is that the prayers that are talked about here will also be in accordance with God's will because we know that he doesn't do anything outside of his will. The word mountain at that time was used as a metaphor for things that were essentially impossible. That's pretty much how we use it now. We tend to think of some situations, particularly certain illnesses, as being a kind of mountain that's impossible to move. And then the passage ends with a reminder to forgive. So first, Jesus points us to God, and our relationship with him, and then out to each other. You'll see that in a lot of places in the Bible. It takes the shape of the cross. So Jesus is saying in this passage, he's telling us that when we begin with this kind of faith that's spoken of here, and we're behaving as we ought to with others, that what happens, the effects of what of that flow as a natural consequence. It's just like describing a natural consequence that we might see, like when given a chance and nothing's blocking its way, water will always flow downhill. It's something that flows out of that kind of confidence in God, this kind of prayer. Now it's important to note at this point things he's not saying. So the passage is not saying don't offer any prayers if your faith is not up to snuff. Prayer, like anything else, is learned by praying, and it means that we're going to be bringing our imperfect selves and our imperfect prayers to a perfect God who's going to be working with us all the way through it. So now the question becomes, is it really possible to have that kind of faith? I mean, this can still feel kinda of like a carrot being dangled just out of reach of a very hungry horse. But if it's possible, how do we enter into it? How does this secure, this secure and confident faith become part of our experience? How do, how do we do that? So I'm gonna just tell you a story. I'm gonna use my sanctified imagination. So for me, during one season, and you could probably hear my family roll their eyes during that, so for me, during a very intense time of prayer, I actually experienced this as something almost personal. It was as if I was involved with an interaction with someone whose name was actually Mark 11, 22 through 25. You know you've heard stranger names in athletics and rock music, okay. But imagine that I was actually interacting with someone named Mark 11, 22, 25. Now, why would I do that? Well, first of all, he comes well recommended. I mean, by God, actually, highly recommended. And he's an expert in a certain topic that really interests me greatly. And because of that, I'm gonna spend time with him. But because he's such an expert and understands this topic so well, God has actually allowed him to write down the very words of God about this topic. So you got it? trusted him according to record God's actual view on it. So day after day, I would be slogging away with Mark 11, 22 through 25, trying to understand this passage. You know about the definition of insanity, right? That one where you do the same thing day after day and expect different results. Now I knew that too because it was important because day after day, Mark 11, 22 through 25, kept presenting me with exactly the same words, presented in exactly the same way. So if he wasn't changing, I needed to. And I would focus on it from different angles, this way and that way. I'd study the words. I'd read it in many, many, many translations. And I still wasn't making any progress. But somehow I still accepted that he was the authority on this. Now just like you, if you're in a situation with someone and you're in a deep amount of interaction, and you feel like nothing's changing, you could get angry. And I got angry. Sometimes I get angry in scripture. And sometimes when you're angry, you say something that shouldn't slip out of your mouth that you're gonna have to apologize for later. But sometimes you say something that you actually do mean and don't really know about until you say it. So what happened to me in dealing with this was that one more time, I was going through this passage, and I got to the first part, have faith in God constantly. And I just had it. I kind of did what preschoolers do. You know, after they've had a little experience with birthday parties, their biggest threat when they're mad at you is, you can't come to my birthday party? I, did, I kind of did that with this. I kind of said back to good old Mark 11 and his representation of God's thing, well, that would be great, but God would have to do it. And then it felt like there was silence in heaven as I waited for the words that I'd said to catch up with my brain. God would have to do it. Here's me pushing on a rock with an unrealistic and unmanageable expe- expectation, and outcomes God would have to do it. And then I looked at 1122 and I thought, who is the only one that I know about who has constant faith in God's goodness, power, and love? So aside from Jesus walking on the earth, it's God. He's the only one who has a constant faith in his abilities. Ours varies. And that set me down on a different road and a different tact. It allowed me to come to God and say, if you're the only one who has absolute confidence in yourself, and I want to start experiencing greater confidence in you, then I need to be spending time with you and asking you to transfer some of that confidence to me. What I want you to see now, as we go back to the scripture, that although the second verse mentions the mountain, the real mountain in this passage happens in, right at the beginning of the passage when it says, have faith in God implied constantly. That's the mountain we can't move. That's the mountain we have to go to, God, to have him help us increase the confidence in him so that we can trust him and live a life that's joyful, full of peace, full of confidence, so that we're not easily swayed. But he's the only one who can do it and thank God he can. Let's pray. Father, it seems that in all of our wandering um, many ways, sometimes long and challenging roads, in the end, when we seek the truth, they all end back where we started with you. So I ask for all of us that you show us the way to draw in closer to you, and that we experience for ourselves a continually more confident and fuller faith in you and that in this we will find joy and rest in all our ways and days, and that you will be glorified. I do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.